Okay, let me, uh, let me start by just bringing you in on the dilemma of a preacher, okay? How does a preacher figure out what to talk about? Carefully, Carefully I like that, thank you. How does a preacher figure out what he's going to talk about from week to week, right? I mean, some of you are thinking, well, you got all week to think about it. You know, what else are you doing? Um, so how hard can it be? But how does a preacher figure out what he's going to talk about? Now, particularly what I mean right now is some of you know that we finished this series. We were traveling through the Gospel of John for most of the summer. And we finished that up a couple of weeks ago. And we're taking August to kind of you know, delve into some miscellaneous things. I shouldn't say miscellaneous things, but um, different topics. And then when September comes, we'll jump back into a, a book of the Bible, a series or something like that. But in those moments, or even week to week, how does a preacher figure out what he's going to talk about? And no one has a clue. I mean, you're just, you're just prayer, okay? You're well, you know, there's, there's a lot of options, right? What was that one? I heard a lot of people laugh, so I want to hear that. Oh, figure out where we need the most help? Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> oh, Lord, help us. You know, no, don't go to social media to figure out what to preach. Um, you know, you have a lot of options, don't you? I mean, you have, a pretty, you have a pretty thick book here, if you're a Christian believer, of stuff you can preach, Right? So why not uh, go to some of those Old Testament stories that have a lot to teach us about, right? How about that? How about talking about uh, idolatry and the idols that they had back in the day and, yeah, even the idols that we have today? That could be another thing to talk about, right? How about this? How about talking about division and factions within the church body. Anybody want to hear about that? Anybody want to talk about that? Divisions, factions, envy and jealousy, things like that. Or how about this one? How about the preacher comes up and he talks about sexual immorality? You can't do that one with the kids in here today, right? So that's not an option. Or maybe we should. But that would be an option, right? What about spiritual gifts, right? I mean, we all like gifts, and the Bible says everybody has a spiritual gift, so why not uh, talk, spend a little time talking about spiritual gifts? That could be helpful, right? Well, all those things, okay, all those things that just came to my head didn't just come to my head because I thought of them uh, in the moment or... But they came to my head because the Apostle Paul actually talks about all those different topics in a letter he wrote called 1 Corinthians, okay? You got 27 books in the New Testament, and 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to this church, and he talks about all those things. He talks about idolatry. He talks about sexual immorality. He, he tells this church, you guys are really messed up. And you're really messed up. It's showing itself because you're so fleshly divided amongst yourself. You have these factions and you have these favorite preachers and you have uh, splits among you. He addresses all those things. But then the Apostle Paul gets to chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians 
And he says, but there's this one thing that I really want to talk to you about. And it's a thing of first importance. In fact, it's news that you need to be reminded of. So I thought, as I was reading 1 Corinthians this week, and actually a few weeks back, but this is where I want us to land this morning, okay? Because we could talk about all sorts of different things. The Bible's a big book. And we got to talk about all those different topics, but with the Apostle Paul, I want to highlight this morning this thing in 1 Corinthians. That's why the title of today's sermon is called First Things. Where Paul says, I want to remind you again of the gospel and of this thing I delivered to you, which is of first importance. Okay? If everything is important, then nothing is important. Have you heard that before? If everything's equally important, then nothing is really important. So Paul, in this long letter full of lots of different topics, he says, there's this one thing, this good news, that I want to make sure you guys really come back to and really have a grasp on. Okay? And I don't want you to forget it. And I want you to know that of all the things that we could talk about, this is the most important. Okay? So turn with me, if you haven't already, to chapter 15, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses, okay? And then pray for us, and uh, then we're going to walk through this passage, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 starts like this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved... If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy unworthy to be called an an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Let's pray. Father God, we just um, quiet our hearts this morning and open our hearts to be reminded of this good news, this thing of first and ultimate importance. And so I pray that you would minister to each of us here, including the preacher, um, what you have for us through this text this morning. I pray that you would refresh us, that you would renew us, you would remind us of this good news. Lord, in a world so full of bad news, would you remind us of this powerful, life-changing, history-altering 
death-defying good news. We need it, God. But I am so often forgetful of it. So Holy Spirit, help us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so uh, what I want us to do is just walk through this um, verse by verse here this morning, okay? So beginning um, back again in verses 1 and 2. Again, I've set up the context a little bit for us, but he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And if you remember last week, I talked about how we're such a forgetful people, right? And uh, last week we talked about how Peter, this other apostle, had said, my, my goal in writing to you is to remind you of some things that you need to remember because you're a forgetful people. And Paul is doing a very similar thing here. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. You've heard it before, okay, because I preached it to you. But because you're forgetful and because you uh, tend to bend away toward other gospels, I want to remind you of the gospel. And most of you probably know that the word gospel means what? Good news. The gospel is good news. And I love the way Tim Keller says this. He says that every other religion is advice, but Christianity is news. Every other religion is telling you, here's what you need to do. Here's, here's some advice for you to follow. But Christianity is saying, here's some news. And that news is not what you have done, but what God has done for you in Jesus. It's not advice, it's news. And if you think about all the other pathways out there, um, Islam has its five pillars Buddhism has its eightfold path, its eight paths. Uh, Hinduism has nirvana, this experience that you're supposed to have. Judaism has the law, right? And Christianity stands unique of all those faiths, of all those paths, saying it's not what you do, these eight paths or these pillars that you follow, Islam, And it's not even this law that you need to keep, but in Christianity, it's news. It's what Jesus has done for you. And we're inclined to forget that, so Paul says, remember it. And he goes on to say that you've received this gospel, and not only have you received this gospel, but it's the gospel in which you stand, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul is getting at this idea that some people, they believe, but just for a moment, and their faith is kind of a vain faith. It doesn't actually produce life in them. They don't hold fast to it. So the apostle John says in 1 John that they, they leave it, and they're leaving us shows that they never really had faith to begin. Okay, now there's a lot of complexity to that. But Paul is saying, this good news I preach to you is the good news you received. It's the good news that you stand in. And then in verses 3 through 5, he's going to give us the 
the essence or the content of that good news, okay? Verses 3 through 5, he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance, there it is, as of first importance, what I also received. And so over and over again in this passage, you have this idea of delivering and receiving. The gospel is delivered, it's, or you could say it's announced, it's heralded, it's preached. The good news is delivered and it's received. And he says, I received this and I delivered it to you as of first importance. And what is the content of that? Delivery, that message that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. All the penalty that you and I owe God, Jesus took upon himself on the cross. He, he died, but he died for a specific purpose. He died for our sins, as payment for our sins, as the just consequence of our sins. And that was needed in accordance with the scriptures, verse 3 says. That phrase is going to be repeated again. And then verse 4 goes on to say, not only did he die for our sins, but he was buried. That's the proof that he died. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to say, what's the, what's the proof that Jesus was raised from the dead? The proof is that he appeared to these people. So you have these four verbs in verses 3 and 4. Those four, those four uh, verbs being died, buried, raised, and appeared. And the first and the third are the most important. Jesus died. We know he died because he was buried. And Jesus was raised. That one's really important too. And we know he was raised because he appeared. And then Paul's going to list these appearances of Jesus. Okay? The good news is that God has not stayed up in the heavens. But God has come down to this earth to deal with the messiness and the brokenness and the violence and the sin of this world. It's the only God that visited this planet as human, came into our mess, and hung on a cross innocently so that you and I don't have to pay for our sins, but that so he, him, by his substitutionary death on the cross, could give us forgiveness. He dies for us so that we don't have to pay for our own sins. He died, but he didn't just die. He was resurrected. He was raised on the third day, victorious over that sin and that death. And again, the proof of that, that he appeared to all these different people, apostles and then to 500 others, so that we could know that he conquered death, that he conquered sin. The world's a beautiful place, except for sin. And sin has tainted and corrupted every other, everything about life on this earth. Our hearts, our relationships, everything about this world has the taint and the corruption of sin. And how are we going to get rid of that? How are we going to fix that brokenness? Well, there's really just a few options. I mean, we could fix it by education if we just got everybody smarter. 
you know, then they wouldn't make these dumb choices to do violent, hateful things, right? Let's just get everybody education. Well, that worked. Well, we're the most educated people the world has ever known, right? And yet still we have this problem with sin. Well, if we just changed the, the economic disparity, if we just kind of leveled out the playing field and people weren't as, you know, stepped on or we got rid of this lower class, kind of elevated them, then things would get peaceful, right? Well, that doesn't seem to work either. And the only thing that will cure hearts, the Bible says, is this good news. This God who comes into the mess of our world and into our own deceitful, wicked hearts and takes that sin upon himself, nails it to the cross and says, I forgive you, I give you grace, though you deserve punishment, though you deserve separation from me, I give you grace. And that powerful display of grace, that powerful act of Jesus of, through the cross and through the empty tomb changes hearts. God, if you did that for me, let me live for you. I can walk now in the freedom of forgiveness and I can walk now in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me. And no moral code, no economic solution can change hearts like receiving the death of someone for you, right? Jesus said himself, no greater love has a man than this than he lay down his life for his friends. I bet you all have heard stories of people, of soldiers in battle where a soldier saved somebody in his battalion, somebody in his platoon by jumping on a grenade or taking the, a, the bullet. Maybe you've heard, a, heard stories of a, of, a, of a parent who gave her life for a child to save the child, right? No greater love has anyone this than they lay down their life for a friend. And that's the power of Jesus laying his life down for us, not just for friends, but actually the Bible would say for enemies. That he would lay down his life for us. That's the good news. That's, that's the story that transforms our hearts, that transforms us from the inside out. Most people... When they think today about religion, um, a guy that uh, did a study about, it's been about a decade ago, says that the predominant worldview of teenagers today, even kids that have been raised in churches, evangelical Bible teaching churches, the predominant view of most people today is a thing that this scholar named Christian Smith calls moralistic, therapeutic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, that's a mouthful, isn't it? So let me explain that to you. Moralistic, this means that most people just, when they think about God, they think that God's just kind of this moral guy up there who wants us to be good, moral, ethical people. That's kind of the bottom line. 
God's good, you be good, maybe you'll get to heaven. The therapeutic part of it is that God's just basically out, out to make me happy. To give me what I want. That's the therapy part of it. And the deism part just means that God is up in the sky, deistic, not theistic, that he doesn't get down in the muck. He doesn't care about what's going on with me Monday through, through Saturday. He just cares that I spend an hour in church on Sunday. That's what the God up above cares about. That's kind of the default understanding even of, of kids and young people that, that are raised in the church these days. And that is not the gospel. That is not the good news. That is not a God that has come down and rescued us and said, you, you can't be good. You're not good enough. So I'll, I'll take your badness upon myself and I'll give you righteousness. That's not moralistic. And it's not just therapy for your heart. It's not just to make you happy. That he comes to make us happy ultimately, but sometimes in the Jesus, Jesus is the perfect example of someone who lived a good, upstanding, moralistic life and got killed for it. Living for Jesus doesn't guarantee that you're going to have this happy, you know, life without problems or consequences. And deistic Jesus has, has not stayed up there, arms folded, looking down, but Jesus has come into this world, seen the muck, not just seen the muck, but experienced it himself. That's good news. The rest of the story in 1 Corinthians goes on to talk about how Jesus is going to resurrect these bodies. He's going to come back again, and he's going to resurrect these bodies so we have a physical eternity with him in a renewed earth that's a kingdom of peace without strife, without racism, with now economic disparity, without violence. That is good news. And that's the only good news that I know to get us through this broken, unpeaceful world. So Paul says, remember that. We need to be reminded of this, of this thing of first importance. And to bring that clear, okay, this morning, I thought it'd be helpful to show you the contrast of that. So Jody and some helpers have a handout for you this morning, okay? And what this handout is, is on this handout, I've given you seven lies, okay? Sometimes the best way to, to get clear about something is to see its contrast, all right? And so on this handout, I've given you seven false gospels, seven false gospels. And I want you to kind of take your eyes down the the page with me for a minute and see what we sometimes err towards in grabbing a hold of a gospel that's really not the gospel. It's really not the news that Jesus has given us. These are false gospels, okay? So let me just highlight 
two of them for you, and you take that home, okay, and look at it this week, and there's a question for you at the bottom to think about what is the, what's the false gospel that you tend to replace the true gospel with, okay? Because if this is true for the Corinthians, they, they needed to be reminded of the gospel, it's true for us as well that we need to be reminded of the gospel, not replace the gospel with our efforts with some other pseudo-gospel, but to be reminded of the true gospel. So sometimes clarity comes by comparison. So let me, let me bring our attention down toward the bottom third of the page, biblicism. Here's a false gospel that I just want to highlight this morning. Biblicism says this, believes this. I know my Bible inside and out, but I do not let it master me. I've reduced the gospel to a mastery of biblical content and theology, so I'm intolerant and critical of those with lesser knowledge. Knowing the Bible and knowing truth is not the gospel. It's really important. But we're not justified by our knowledge. We're not justified by our theology. We're justified by grace through faith in what Jesus has done for us. Biblicism is not the gospel. Let me point our attention up to the second one on the page that has been titled legalism, okay? And I think this one is a tempting one for good Southern, morally upright, conservative people, legalism. Legalism says, I live by the rules. Rules I create for myself and rules I create for others. I feel good if I can keep my own rules. And I become arrogant and full of contempt when others don't meet the standards I set for them. There is no joy in my life because there is no grace to be celebrated. This is just the gospel of of works. The gospel of the law that says if I can meet a standard that I've set for myself, then I can feel good about myself and I can look down on other people who don't meet the standard that I've set or don't try as hard perhaps as I do. That's not a gospel. That's a false gospel. That's a a legalism. That's a gospel without Jesus. The good news is that Jesus has come to rescue and to save and to give his life for you and me so that we can be rightly related to God through faith, through simple faith in him. We hear the gospel, the gospel is preached to us, we receive the gospel with no merit of our own. Just that Jesus loved me so much, he was happy to die for me. My my heart was so scarred, so dark, so wicked that Jesus had to die for my sins, but Jesus loves me so much that he was glad to do it. To save me from my sin, to save me from this broken world. I uh, I woke up 
this morning at 4 o'clock. Not to the buzz of my alarm, but to the buzz of my heart. Of my own internal anxiety. And so I... uh, and so I texted a friend, not at four o'clock, but uh, I texted a friend a couple hours later and just said, I need some prayer this morning. And then I, and then I got into the scriptures and I turned this morning to Psalm 40 and maybe let me read a couple verses of where I was this morning. I encourage you to look at it later, but I needed to be reminded of the good news. And here's the good news I read in Psalm 40, part of it. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Verse 9. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. When we go through life and get weighed down by the brokenness of all that's happening around us, by the pressures upon us, by the anxiety within us, the good news is that Jesus has come and saved us from from it all. And let me read again verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your love, your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. That's the gospel That Jesus' mercy through the cross will never lack, will never be held back from us. He's got us in the palm of his hand. He bled and died for us, so he's taking care of us. His blood, his death on the cross shows us. You say, well, that, that can't be for me. And look at how Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to describe the recipients of the gospel, particularly himself. He says all these people, uh, verse 7, uh, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, 
and his grace toward me was not in vain. Sometimes we feel unworthy of the gospel. We've got to earn it. We've got to do something more. We've got to prove ourselves. And maybe that's not you. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> but I find that I have to be reminded of the gospel. And Paul here goes on to say that Jesus has died. He has been raised from the dead. He's appeared. And he doesn't just appear to people that have it all together. To people that don't fear, to people that don't have anxiety, to, to people that have measured up morally. He says, Jesus' grace appeared to me the most unworthy of all the apostles. Do you see that? Why? Because Paul was persecuting the church. He was killing what God was attempting to do, and God, in his grace, since Jesus to appear to the most unworthy person, the most unworthy apostle of all. So guess what? There is no inadequacy, guilt, sin, rejection, anxiety in me or you, sinfulness in you or me, bad deed, past transgression that can separate you from the grace of Jesus. Point being... Paul himself, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And God's grace has worked in me, Paul says, so that I am working out the gospel within my life and ministry. Most of us in this room don't want to just accept grace. I know because I know myself. I know because you, I talk to you. And the good news is everyone in this room qualifies. Because the only thing you need is need. That's good news. And if you and I could remember that, if you, could, if you and I could get that, if we could rub that in the heart of our soul, then it transforms us to people who not only receive grace, but people who give grace. So let me finish with this. You go back to that language that I mentioned earlier of receiving the gospel and then delivering the gospel. Receiving the gospel and delivering the gospel. We saw that. I, I made mention of that earlier, right? That repetition of those verbs. Let me challenge us this morning. Who'd you receive the gospel from? Think about that person right now, or think about that ministry, whatever it was. For most of us, it's probably a person. It might be somebody you saw on TV, but most of the time, it's a person in real life, flesh and blood. Now, let me ask you the second question. Who are you delivering that gospel to? That's the, that's the, the pattern. Receive the gospel Deliver the gospel. 
We have a few people that showed up here today that drove by and saw a nice building and looked up our website and they decided to come to church this morning and join us here at Centennial. Thumbs up. Praise the Lord. Most people are going to drive by Coy Road and they're not going to come in here because they saw a sign and they saw a church building. You know that? Our world is becoming less and less churched. You can't just hang a sign out and expect people to come to church. People are no more looking for a church than I am driving by that Hindu temple on independence and think, I think I'll go in there someday. You know why? Because I'm not Hindu. And most people driving up and down Coit are not Christians. And God has not called us to bring the world into the church. He's told the church to go out into the world. And so here's my question again. Who are you taking? Who are you delivering the gospel to? Because we're convinced as a church elder team, as a leadership of this church, that the way we're going to make disciples is not by getting people to come, though that's wonderful when they come, but it's by us being inspired and equipped to go out there and deliver the gospel. So do you have anyone in mind at your workplace, on your street, on your team, in your class, that you're praying for and that you're seeking ways to deliver the gospel to them? That's the pattern. Receive it and deliver it. Why? Because it's the best news there is out there. It's the only option for a broken and hurting world. My heart needs it. Your heart needs it. And millions, thousands of people around us need that good news. Let's pray. Father God, I just confess my forgetfulness in front of my brothers and sisters, the way that I look to myself and not to Christ, the way I look to my merit instead of the merit of Jesus. And I thank you, God, for your grace that finds me where I am and heals me as I am. As we prepare to come to your table this morning, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to us. We didn't find you on our own, but that you came to us, shed your blood, died our death, conquered that sin and death through your resurrection and our returning with a new kingdom for us to enjoy forever. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.